Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's great to be back on air. I had a bit of a holiday last week. I was away and uh, was not on air. It's great to be back here. It's always great to be back in the studio. A little bit of a chill in the air. Um, autumn is definitely on the way. If I look out the window, we can see, or I can see, the trees changing color. And it's always amazing how they change color. It's a bit of a barometer because they start changing color when we feel that we are on the, the height of summer and everything's warm and the sun's shining. And all of a sudden we see the the leaves start changing color. And a lot of that has to do with the, the length of the day starting to shorten and uh, old mother nature realizing that and starting to make the adjustments for that. So it's nice to go into a, a, a new season with, uh, with a different feel and a different touch and a different taste simply because it's, it's getting cooler. Um, but at the same time on the financial and on the business side, going into the second quarter of the year, Going into, for a lot of companies, the last quarter of their business cycle um, is always quite interesting because this is when things tend to heat up. This is when uh, things tend to get a little, little bit excitable simply because people are, you know, are pressing for just for the sales figures. They're pressing to get that stock inventory correct because those financials are going to be audited shortly after the year end. And they'd like them to be as positive as, as possible for investors, for themselves. Uh, you know, they'd like their dividends to be what it should be. But we also have a new breed of investor that's come onto the market. Um, just to relate very briefly, I was at a client who is a medical individual um, uh, two, three weeks ago, and at the end of our meeting, he said to me, well, what do you know about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular? And I said, look, I've, I've done a little bit of homework. I understand roughly how they work, but I'm not involved. And I, uh, I'm not something, it's not something that really appeals to me. And I sort of justified myself hoping that the conversation would end. He then uh, very proudly marched me into a room in his house that looked like something out of Star Wars, um, steel doors and air conditionings and uh, batteries of hard drives running. And, uh, you know, three, uh, three, um, phase power coming into it. And it comes out that he's mining cryptocurrency. He's got one in his house and one in another, another location. Capital outlay was exorbitant. And in November last year, they were making really, really good money. I worked out about between three and four hundred percent return. Um, not so much anymore as the price has come down. My intrigue was not how you made the money, but what do you do with the money? Because number one, it doesn't really exist. So where do you park it? Where do you bank it? And it's all good and well to be very wealthy and to have um, cash, so to speak, that is available for you all over the world. But what do you spend it on? You know, we, we, we keep trying to inculcate a culture of savings rather than a culture of spending. But over here, my question was, what are you going to spend it on? And it, I was quite, you know, fascinated as to the array of assets that one could buy with the cryptocurrency and also really showed my, naive, my naivety and my lack of knowledge of the particular product. But be that as it may, we're taking a slightly different angle now. And those of you who are involved, those of you who've got the currency, those of you who are trading or you simply 
got in right on the ground floor and spent your 50 rand or your 5,000 rand and today are looking very pretty. Um, the previous minister, uh, Malusi Gagaba, in the last budget speech, she came out and said, we're going to start looking into you guys. And all of a sudden, it's not looking so glorious because you've now got an asset that needs to be declared how, where, why, and what. And I'm not the expert, but we do have the expert on the line, and that's Bridget King, who is um, from Cliff Decker. Bridget, welcome to Chai FM. Hi, Abby. Thank you for having me. Sorry, we had a momentary glitch over there. And I must also say I apologize. I didn't give your correct title over there. You are the Director of Finance and Banking Practice at Cliff Decker Hofmeyer. Great. Bridget, Talk us through the legal quandary that investors in cryptocurrency are now facing. Sure. So there's a lot of South African investors, like you mentioned, that have started buying cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin more and more in uh, in recent years. Um, And so we have South African investors who are using uh, Bitcoin platforms to make their investments. Um, they are sending money offshore essentially so that they can become the owner of these bitcoins. Right. Um, and the questions that are starting to arise is what are the consumer protection and the investor protection rules that we um, have in place? Because largely, the investments in bitcoins are in any jurisdiction, it's still largely un- unregulated. Um, so what the staff have included in their press release, um, which you mentioned, the February press release, they're going to start looking at risks um, that need to be considered with regard to consumer investor protection. That's one of the things that they're going to have to weigh up when looking at the potential set of rules that might be able to govern the investment into Bitcoin and the use of Bitcoin, like you said, for transactions around the world. Um, the, I think that what they have to weigh up on the other side is that, you know, they, yes, they've got to make sure that our financial um, systems in South Africa are stable, um, but they also need to consider the fact that because Bitcoin is anonymous, um, a lot of its transactions aren't traceable, it makes it a valuable commodity uh, for those involved in money laundering, materials, financing, um, so they need to have a look at that as well. And there's also, um, like you mentioned, the risk of um, your investments and your returns not being taxed um, in the hands of the investor. You know, Bridget, so those are the, an outline of the factors they're considering. You know, to me it almost sounds a little bit too good to be true. The government and the FSB, the Financial Services Board, and all the regulatory bodies are really worried about your money and my money that we should have the correct framework, that there should be rules and regulations. Is it not really motivated by the fact that there is profit being made and there's no tax being paid? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the rules which apply, I mean, the tax rules which apply to your, your income and your capital gain, in theory that should apply to your income and capital gains, whether it's earned on normal financial products like shares and deposits or on cryptocurrencies that are held offshore. Um, and, of course, when you externalize money under your foreign exchange investment allowance, there's right. also certain allowances there which have to be abided by. You know, it's quite um, fascinating how... 
Is it, Bridget? Sorry, I, I'm I'm interjecting simply because the line is not great. Do you mind? Um, we're just going to take you offline for a moment and try call you on another number to get a better reception. We'll be back with you in a moment. Right, so see, that was Bridget King, who's the Director of Finance and Banking Practice at Cliff Decker Hoffmeyer. And we're discussing cryptocurrency. Sorry about that. We actually had her on a landline, which is the preferred way of doing it, because the cell phones can be dodgy. And here we've got a dodgy landline. So we're trying to get her on her cell phone in order to just get a better, um, um, get, get a better line so we can have a clearer discussion. But maybe to go back, to what I was saying um, just before we got Bridget on the line is that ultimately we've got people making investments, we've got people generating profit from those investments, and that's unregulated. In other words, a person can do what and how they want for the the, the primary reason that the person doesn't exist. It's all anonymous. You don't have a name. It's not AVK investing. It's number XYZ investing. And therefore that brings on a whole lot of complexities. Um, but I think we've solved our technical glitch. Bridget, are you back with us? Yes, I am. Now that is uncanny. There we go. The landline wasn't clear, but the cell phone is crystal. Thank you for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bridget, if you wouldn't mind just going back to the beginning of the previous conversation before I so rudely cut you off. Yes. Um, well, I think we were talking about future regulation of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. At the moment in South Africa, they're completely unregulated. Um, there's no ombud or board or tribunal um, or central regulatory authority who look after um, investments in cryptocurrencies. Um, and the South African Reserve Bank, as you mentioned, they've got their February press release that they've put out saying that it's um, a field that they want to start monitoring and looking at to put in place a regulatory framework of some kind. Okay, Bridget. Sorry about the break, but we just quickly need to run to the shops. We need, we need to pay for the radio station somehow. So if you want to mind us hanging on the line, we'll be back with you in a moment. Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It's 20 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us if you've just joined. Thanks for staying us if you've been with us since the beginning. Um, we are in, we are speaking to Bridget King, who's the Director of Finance and Banking Practice at Cliff Defke Hofmeyer, and we're discussing the legalities and the legal complications around cryptocurrencies. Um, Bridget, thanks for holding on the line. Um, going forward, do you feel that legislation will impede the enticement to invest in cryptocurrency simply because it will take the shine away of being anonymous? Yeah, I think one of the attractive aspects of cryptocurrency is that it is anonymous. Um, the, the flip side of that, though, is that it does become an attractive commodity to people who want to trade anonymously. So, um, you know, you've got your risks around money laundering and terrorist financing and that sort of thing. Um, one of the other criticisms of regulating Bitcoin is that if you regulate it too soon, in an industry that's evolving and um, is so innovative at the moment, it's changing, um, you don't want to throttle the growth and innovation by regulating too soon. So the, the, the SAB and the regulators will need to weigh up letting the technology grow into what it, whatever it's going to become um, versus getting involved from a consumer and investor protection side. 
And Bridget, this might sound like a bit of a, a cheeky question, but one thing that we have seen about South Africa is for all the challenges to use the political term that we have to put up with um, you know, in the last couple of years, when it comes to finance and banking, we really stand shoulder to shoulder with the best in the world, if not above a lot of them. Um, we, we really, you know, the 2008-2009 financial crisis sort of bumped us, but it didn't derail us simply because our systems were in place and they were adhered to. Do do we have a a treasury, a um, minister of finance at the moment that is progressive enough to look at this thing and say, we need to build framework that's not going to throttle, but is going to support? Or, or, or are we just looking at a bumpy road going forward? Absolutely. I mean, our financial markets are very well regulated. We're a member of the G20. Um, you know, we, we usually do keep up with what's going on in the rest of the world from a regulatory perspective. Um, often we'll adopt a wait-and-see approach um, and then adopt a set of financial regulations that suit South Africa as a market. Um but certainly the Saab will be looking at um, what's happening in the rest of the world. For example, South Korea have recently banned um, anonymous trades using cryptocurrencies. Um, we're waiting to see what the rest of the world will do. Um, and a lot of debate, there's a lot of debate that perhaps a system of centralized regulation wouldn't be appropriate for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies because they are a decentralized uh, monetary system. Central supervision is potentially not the most appropriate form of supervision. So there's some speculation, and I mean, this is just looking at the future and sort of crystal ball gazing, um, that we might see uh, more self-regulatory organizations or SROs being developed under overarching statutes to regulate Bitcoin platforms, Bitcoin exchanges, Bitcoin providers. Um, So it might be in the form of of SRO-type regulation, in terms of binding rules as opposed to um, legislation or a combination of both, in fact. You know, so the way I'm, uh, the way I view it is that at the moment it's still very free. Regulation is going to come in really with the underpinning logic of regulating to a sense to protect the consumer rather than regulating for regulation's sake and also to create some sort of framework that is a point of reference. Um, if we just take, you know, for example, the FASE Act or the FICA Act, which the names have now changed, but, um, you know, going back, I remember when they first came in, there was a whole hoobaloo, yeah. and if you really looked at it, all they were saying was, please don't be a crook on the one hand, and on the other hand, or please don't use stolen money, or, or dirty money, and on the other hand, please just be transparent, clear, and do what's right for the client. And I remember I was very young in the industry at the time, and I said, but guys, all they're asking you to do is just to change your modus operandi, just be a little bit more proactive, more efficient, and put systems in place. That's all. And I almost see this going the same way as we are not going to stand on your toes. We're just going to make sure that you don't step step off the cliff. Yeah. And so at the moment, um, cryptocurrency is not a financial product that is regulated by FASE or FICA or the Banks Act or any of those existing pieces of legislation. So, you know, the Hawks have been doing an investigation into some unscrupulous imposters who are holding themselves out as 
as Bitcoin platforms. Um, and at the moment, as a South African, if your cryptocurrency is hacked or stolen, you know, there's no ombud that you can go and complain to. There's no tribunal. Um, so, so you know, you're sort of trading at your own risk at the moment. And I think in a way that's a bit of the allure of it is that it's the last financial frontier, so to speak. We, we're not sending ships from Portsmouth to the east and, you know, we don't see them for four or five months and hope they come back. Um, but mm. we are trading in cryptocurrency, which is, again, a whole new angle and, and a whole new way of doing things. But, Bridget, thank you so much for coming on the show. Just to mention one thing to you, uh, I was very excited mm. when we got a hold of you this morning because we we tried really hard yesterday afternoon to try and get hold of one of these Bitcoin um um, coaches or one of the platforms or someone to come speak about it. If you go and Google Bitcoin cryptocurrency and in South Africa, you get pages and pages and pages of stuff, but there's no one to speak to, which is something that we found very odd. We did find one company, GI, who's a London based mm-hmm. company and they, they couldn't come in and they were very open and very transparent. But again, they are a platform that um, uses derivatives to trade. So, Bitcoin is just one of the derivatives. But I found that very interesting that there's a lot of people that want your money, but no one's prepared to put their number on the web. And that's right. So in those structures, you 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 actually have sort of a synthetic holding. So you have a derivative instrument where the underlying reference asset is a cryptocurrency. Correct. Um, which is slightly different to the other um, foreign Bitcoin exchanges, which offer you an actual, um, an actual cryptocurrency itself. Fantastic. Um, so that that definitely is the two different models. Um, and I suppose just to remember there that at the at the moment in South Africa, whichever way you are doing it, you must repatriate your South African funds offshore in terms of your exchange control investment allowances through an authorized dealer. If you're doing it as a derivative. And if you're doing it as a pure investment. Can you can one not just declare it and then pay the tax here? Yeah. You you first get permission through your commercial bank, which right. is an authorized dealer, and you've got an allowance of one million rand as a single discretionary once off allowance without a tax clearance certificate, or ten million rand per calendar year um, for all of your foreign investments. But that must include your um, your investments in cryptocurrency as well. Okay, so I misunderstood exactly. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Bridget, once yeah. again, thank you so much for your time and I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Avi. Thanks Great. for having me. Thank you. That was Bridget King, who's Director of Finance and Banking Practice at Cliff Decker Hofmeyer. And I found that very, very interesting. And it was the more of the legal angle than the financial angle. But once again, what it's really saying to us is that there needs to be a framework in which financial transactions take place. One cannot simply transact as you wish without a framework. You know, if you take the oldest framework of financial transactions in South Africa, we're talking about stockfills. Here was farmers got together, rural people got together, famously rural ladies got together where they were left, where their husbands and the men went into work, and they were left to raise the children look after the cattle, raise the crops, run the home, do whatever they needed to do. And by coming together, they were able to have a buying power 
en masse. They will be able to get advice. They were able to leverage things that they weren't able to leverage individually. But even that is now being regulated. Um, I think some of it has to do with unscrupulous behavior where, um, you know, naivety can uh, creeps in and someone takes advantage of that. And on the other hand, you just cannot have financial transactions that aren't regulated. And the regulation is not onerous. It's more supportive and more preventative rather than onerous. But um, I think enough uh, of cryptocurrency for today. Um, we really will like to try to get somebody in to really unpack how it works and what it's all about. But that's uh, a show for another day. Something that I'd like to just to let you know with the weather changing is that Jaguar Bryanston wants to fill the e-space's generous loading space with as many blankets as they can and take it to people in need. So please become a part of this initiative. Simply bring new blankets to the Chai FM offices before the 31st of May 2018 and Bryanston Jagger will match every donation received. So if you just go pick up a blanket, you're in pick and pay, you're in you know, pep stores, buy a blanket, bring it through and for every blanket there's going to be two blankets. And if you just think about it, if there's a thousand blankets, there's going to be 2,000 blankets, which means that's 2,000 people less cold or not cold this winter. So let's warm this winter for somebody who really needs it. Please call 011-463-4603 for more information. Right, changing uh, direction slightly, um, one thing that, that I've got a lot of emails about in, in the last short while is a very, very disturbing phenomena. Um, I mentioned in the beginning of the show that I was sitting with a doctor about three weeks ago who's also involved in cryptocurrency. And I just asked him off the cuff. I said, are you seeing as an anesthetist a lot more operations than involve cancer? And he looked up to me and said to me, it was unusual. And now it's becoming common. And that's something that I'm finding in my practice, and that's something I'm seeing echoed by many, many, many clients where, you know, severe illness or dread disease, depending on the name of the company, how you want to call it, was something that one bought, and, you know, you had it there, a little bit of a safety net, and you almost forgot about it because cancer happened to the unfortunate few, um, and, um, you know, it wasn't something that was really top of mind. What I'm seeing in my practice and what I'm hearing from other people is that it's definitely on the increase and the amount of payouts for severe illness is definitely, definitely increasing. So on the back of that, the questions that I'm getting is what's the difference between this type and that type of severe illness at this company? You know, how much do I need, et cetera, et cetera. So what I want to do is spend the next maybe 15 minutes just unpacking severe illness a little bit in simple layman's terms without using the technical jargon, without using ski depth charts, simply just to give you guys an understanding as to what the product is, what it's meant to do, and how it works so that you can call your financial advisor and say, look, I want to sit down and I want to have a look at this, and I just want to make sure that I have sufficient and the right product in place. Right, let's let's take a step back and let's be nonpartisan when it comes to companies because it actually doesn't make a major difference if your financial planner is at Liberty, at Sunlum, at Discovery, at Momentum. 
the severe illness uh, definitions are actually they actually are defined, and you either subscribe to them or you add or you detract from a, a given list. But the definition is that if you contract a, a severe illness or a dread disease, let's rather call it a severe illness, and you're not treated for that, the probability of you living beyond a certain point is very limited. In other words, this is something that could be terminal. The fact that you treated it and you got it diagnosed and you got it sorted doesn't take away from the fact that it was there and that will therefore trigger a claim. The common question that I get asked is, I had a million rand severe illness. Why did I only get paid 250000 Or why did I get paid even less? And the answer boils down to, Two things. Number one, the type of severe illness benefit that you have. And number two, the severity of the illness that you had. So let's deal with the first thing first, the type of benefit that you had. If you've got an old benefit, by that I mean more than five years, maybe a little bit more, and you haven't updated it, then you run the risk of the product being designed in such a way that the more severe your diagnosis, the bigger the payout, and the less severe the diagnosis, the smaller percentage the payout will be. So in other words, they've got categories A, B, C, and D, and typically a category D um, um, occurrence will attract a 25% payout of the amount that you have. Now, when we bring in the second point is the severity of the illness it's so callous to turn around to somebody who's not well, going through treatment and say, sure, you were lucky. You only got a category D. You, you know, it could have been a lot worse, but that's why we, the company's only paying out a smaller amount. You know, when someone gets ill where they trigger a severe illness claim, the fact that a claim has been paid means that it's severe enough for it to be paid. So, the first, the first things first is that you're not well, and the sensitivity must be applied in that region. But second of all, the last thing I think anybody wants to hear is that, sure, you really got away lightly. So the way to change that is to adjust your benefit where you've got a broader catchment of definitions. And regardless of the category, you should be able to get a 100% payout. So that's like me saying to you, well, if you drive a 1.3 Corolla, do you know that if you got a 1.8, you could get far better drive, better tires, you know, far um, more exhilarating drive, et cetera, et cetera. And your answer would be, yeah, well, I'm well aware of that, but there's 150,000 Rand price difference. And that's exactly the same thing over here is that. You know, I'm sure if those of you have claimed and, 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 you know, got a smaller payout, if you look back at the record of advice, there was a list there that you could have got A, B, C, and D, and you went for B simply because that was what you could afford at the time. Where the, the gray area comes in is that that was six years, 10 years, eight years, 15 years ago. Why wasn't it upgraded? And, and again, I want to say is that it's so easy to say, well, my financial advisor came to see me and he told me everything's fine. I'm telling you to ask your financial advisor, please, is there a possibility of the upgrade and how much will it cost? Give me the option to make a decision whether I want to upgrade, what the advantages are and what it will cost me. 
you know that that's the prerogative of the of, of the client at the end of the day is to know what's out there to know it's what it's going to cost and to be able to make that decision based on the information given in front of you you know just to also ch- look at it from a slightly different angle um severe illness is one of those benefits that is most probably likely to pay within your lifetime the challenge is that the healthier you are and the more you look after yourself and if you've been blessed thank god with great genes the probability of having that benefit when or if something goes wrong much down the line is that the premium becomes prohibitive yes i only had a million rand when i started i've now got three million rand cover but my premium was 1500 rand it's now seven thousand rand i just i just can't afford it please do yourself a favor and look at the option of reducing the premium and therefore reducing the cover rather than scrapping it all together and there might be a a point to discuss with your financial planner. Can I maybe downgrade my benefit instead of having 100% across the board, or in some cases 200% across the board, maybe let me go to a tiered benefit. At least I'll have something in place that's affordable rather than not having anything in place. So I think that's severe illness um, in a nutshell. And just before we go to the break, the the way it's often determined as to whether you do or don't qualify these days is simply a blood test. And it's not a blood test that you have to have. It most probably already has been done. That's how it was determined that you are not well. You know, they want the enzyme test for the heart attack or they want the the pathology test for cancer markers, et cetera, et cetera. And once those are there, then it's it's irrefutable and, and it's there. It's, 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 it's totally upfront. Um, and, and therefore, uh, you should be a lot more successful um, in, in getting your claim. But it often is a bit of a process and your financial advisor should really be able to help you with that. But I've seen claims paid out in 36 hours once ID and proof of banking have been received together with um, the supporting medical um, proof or documents. It's quite efficient. And uh, I really encourage you to go back and to speak to your financial advisor and just make sure you know how much you have you know what it's costing and you know how it's going to pay out. Let's take a quick break. And when I come back, just to talk briefly around how much severe illness one should have. Avi on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9. Hi FM. Welcome back to 101.9. Hi FM. It's 20 minutes to one. Thank you so much for staying with us. If you've been with us from the beginning where we discuss cryptocurrency, or if you've just joined, we are now just discussing the the end part of the discussion about severe illness. Um, what I want to spend maybe the next five minutes discussing is how much severe illness to have. And the answer is that we're not quite sure. Um, life covers in a way quite simple to work out because if you take a simple scenario – a, an individual has, uh, let's say a man has a wife who doesn't work and he has a child who's five years old and he knows how much the wife and child would need to live today. And then we factor in things like holidays and um, education and bits and pieces and we work out as to how long is his life coming going to support the wife 
and the child might be different. You know, the wife might say, look, I'm more than happy to go back to my profession and I can earn really comfortably. So make sure we have enough life cover just to cover our child so that I, you know, I will go back to work and support the two of us. But my ex-husband's, if should he pass away, his life cover will look after my son and I don't have to worry about that financially. Severe illness, on the other hand, there's no real barometer as to how much you should have. What, what are we going to ensure? You know, the medical aid should cover the cost of the treatment, please God. Um, there might be a shortfall and there could be a shortfall. So we might factor that in, but we don't know what it's going to be. So that's an unknown factor. The second thing is we are going to must sort of be off work and not be able to work. Severe illness is not really there to cover that shortfall in income, that income continuation or income replacement benefit should be in place to do that. So the way it's often looked at is what is the cost of medical aid? Although it's what is the cost of keeping the medical aid going so that my direct medical expenses can be covered and the cost of the medical aid can be covered from my severe illness. It's an alarming figure because if you take a young family with three children on, let's say, Discovery's classic comprehensive today, you're looking at close to 10,000 rand a month with medical inflation running northwards of 10% on an annual basis. In order to cover the severe, the, the, med, the medical aid costs going forward, if you amortize those figures, they often come out and you sort of have to count the zeros to work out where to put the comma because they're big. End of the day, we've got inflation running at above 10%. We've got an already high cost starting off now. And the prognosis or the probability of a person living with a severe illness has increased. So somebody can be very, very ill and be on a lot of medication, a lot of support, but still live. And your life expectancy is not necessarily diminished. So if you're a young person of 30, and, you know, you're expected to live to 85 and you have a major heart attack and you have the right interventions, there's a little good chance you can live to 85, whether you could work, whether you can be as active as you were before, hopefully, but, but maybe not. How do we ensure against that eventuality? So the, the, the thing that one should really discuss with the financial advisor is, number one, what type of product am I getting? Is it going to pay out, you know, comfortably across the board? Number two is how much do I need to cover my direct medical aid costs? And number three, if I take it going forward, what is the expected increase going to be? Because if that benefit's going to increase at 10, 12, maybe unfortunately even sometimes 14% a year, and your income is only going up at inflation, which is let's say 6%, that thing's going to very, very quickly run away with you. There is another side and another angle at looking at that, and that is, well, right now I can afford it. I'll deal with the unaffordability at a later stage because right now I can afford it. Right now I'm incredibly vulnerable because I have a young family that's totally financially dependent on me. So if I can afford it, let me take it, and let's look at it as on an annual basis as I go forward. Because the logic might be, as I go forward, my need for life cover is going to decrease. As the kids come off your payroll and they become financially independent on their own, they're no longer dependent on you. You know, therefore no longer need to insure them at the level that you did before. So 
what it is, it's a living organism in the fact that it's dynamic and it morphs and it changes. And one really needs to stay on top of it and look at it on an ongoing basis. And and what you'll be surprised is that if you were able to do the calculations perfectly in year one, you might get to year five and all of a sudden you look back at year one and say, how did we get to those figures? They were, they, they seem ridiculous in hindsight. Simply because as things grow and as things change and as inflation sets in, everything becomes skewed. And it's almost impossible to look at a trajectory going forward and say, if I just have the right increase, so the needle be the same. We don't know. Because your increase on your benefit might be 6%, 8%. But medical inflation is going up at 12%. So there you've got a 50% differential between the two. And it's just a important to have a look at it as on an ongoing basis. But I would strongly advise that you speak to your financial um, advisor. I shouldn't say advise because I'm not giving advice, but I would recommend that you speak to your financial advisor and you constantly are looking at the upgrades, what are the enhancements, and also to make sure that when you're enhancing, you're not leaving anything out. In other words, well, the new enhancements will include, you know, A, B, C, D, E, and F, but G is no longer there because it was there before. Now, you're going to work out, do I or don't I want to? It's unlikely that's going to happen. But just be aware of, of how these things all come together. Um, and lastly, you know, the, the last area that I'm, that I'm constantly asked about is, do I need to have severe illness for my children? Because a lot of companies offer it. Some companies offer it automatically if your child's under 21 they'll get 10 percent of your cover but should i put severe illness in place for my child and i'm going to say clearly on the radio that that is a a very sensitive topic um and people don't ask that question flippantly they often ask it because they're affected by something in their family and they're looking to provide the right protection the answer that I think is maybe most appropriate is to make sure that you do have something in place, but that it's not prohibitively expensive because cover for children, it tends to be relatively cheap and relatively inexpensive. And you just put it in place and, you know, for the 50 rand or whatever it is, you've got peace of mind that it's there. But just to make you aware of the option, if you didn't know, and for those of you who are asking, it's not something that I'd really like to discuss on air, because often you find that when we sit in the in the privacy of your lounge or in my office, then one's able to speak more freely and the, the emotion comes out and this is the reason I want it or this is what's concerning me. And therefore, we can find or can tell you a solution to the problem rather than having a shotgun approach to it. But uh, I think we've, we've, we've answered all the questions that have come through. And once again, thank you for those. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It's 10 minutes to the hour. We've got a few minutes left. So let me give you an intro as to where we are going with the show next week. Um, I was contacted by a phenomenal young um, startup company. They might be young, but they're not small. 400 million 
a startup capital that was put in by one investor is quite substantial. And uh, that's the company we'll be hopefully talking to next week. They're very keen to come on. I just want to see if we don't have a conflict on the, in the calendar. But uh, that's a company that I'm really lo- looking forward to speaking about. Um, they only really release the information tomorrow. So I've been asked not to say too much. The other company that we'll be having in, uh, having, um, in studio either next week or the week after is a company that is a good old-fashioned shipping company. It's something that we don't really speak about in business these days. We're not quite sure how the flat screen got to the shop. Um, we're not quite sure how our gold gets exported or our coal gets exported. But almost all of it goes by sea. And one thing that we are seeing is an increase in shipping traffic in the African continent. And that has to do with the growth of disposable income for um, people living in the continent. And one thing we know is that it's growing and it's developing. And more it grows and more it develops, and the more people have disposable income, the more they're going to buy goods and services. And the more they're going to need those goods and services to come in via ports of, of entry via the sea. We know that the, the road infrastructure is not great. The rail infrastructure, unfortunately, has allowed has been allowed to decay and, decay and crumble over the last couple of years. Not always that safe either. So um, shipping is really the way to go. And that also creates a huge amount of employment and a, a stimulus in the economy in the port cities. All of a sudden, you need people to work there. You need to build the dock. You need to service the dock. You then need, you then need transport. You then need storage. And all that impacts on people living around the country. So that's a company we'll be talking to hopefully either next week or the week after um, by way of intro. So thanks very very much for, living, for listening. Thanks, uh, Bridget King, who's Director of Finance and Banking Practice at Cliff, Cliff Decker-Hoffmeyer for coming on. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you next week.